0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. In 2018, for the very first time, Canada received more planned refugees than any other country in the world. I spoke with Robert Falconer, he's a researcher at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and it's his research that we're talking about. Have a listen. The Yellow Vests, who are they and what are their objectives? I spoke with a Yellow Vest organizer from Saskatchewan. His name is Mark Friesen. Mr. Friesen is also involved with organizing the truck convoy from Red Deer to Ottawa next month. University of Western Ontario Associate Professor of Political Science and Opinions columnist Salim Mansour joined me. and We were talking about the UN's plans, objectives, and agendas. Are they what the UN claims them to be? Professor Mansour says they're anything but. Lyle and Carol Bronze are the parents of humble Broncos athletic therapist Dana Bronze, who lost her life in the horrific crash between the Broncos bus and the semi-trailer truck. Tomorrow, the driver of the truck begins his five days of sentencing hearings. Mr. And Mrs. Bronze joined me on the program to talk about that. Crime victims in Canada and what they face from the justice system, which sometimes is neither justice nor a system. Joe Wombach and his family suffered horribly. He's been very proactive. I spoke with Joe and with Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and executive director of the Canadian Police Association. Jessie Mello is the daughter of Canadian boxer Eddie the Hurricane Mello, who was murdered by contract killing. Jessie is very concerned about what's going on with her dad's killer with the acquiescence of Correctional Service Canada. Mr. Falconer, thank you very much for the time.
1: Happy to be here.
0: So this headline or this first line of your research is going to catch a lot of people by surprise. Uh, and so we'll look for, for for context. So can I ask you just out of the gate, Who are the planned refugees, and who does the planning?
1: Uh, That's a good question. So after World War II, uh, the United Nations and several participating governments decide that they are going to start a resettlement program. This is where they go to places like refugee camps, uh, and they agree to relocate the most vulnerable uh, refugees from there to another country. Uh, the United Nations doesn't pick these people. They do definitely help identify the most vulnerable, but ultimately it's up to the Canadian government to decide how many it is going to take every year and who exactly these people are. So uh, it's been about 72 years since that program's been in existence, and every year Canada has a certain target for how many uh, refugees we are going to resettle in Canada. So just to be clear, these are not... Uh, you have to differentiate these from the asylum seekers. These are people... The asylum seekers are the ones who might cross the border or they land in Canada or might already be here, and then they, they claim protection within Canada. So, so their claim has to be vetted here in Canada. Resettled refugees have their claims uh, and security checks vetted abroad.
0: Okay, so that, that's what we're talking about now, is the resettled refugees.
1: Yes, we're right? talking about the, the, the ones we plan to bring in every year.
0: Okay, and the government decides year by year, depending on which government it is, and depending on the year, they decide how many refugees are going to be resettled in this manner. That is correct. Now, what role does the United Nations play?
1: So the United Nations uh, and a few other relief organizations as well, they're, they're of course, housing many of these in, in refugee camps or in cities uh, with high populations of displaced persons. They, they might recommend a certain person to Canada as being uh, best for resettlement. Now, what's interesting here is it's actually not their, their top priority. Their top priority is they want to try to return people back to their home countries but if because of maybe an ongoing war or conflict or chance of persecution, the next thing we will try to prioritize is actually uh, settling, them, settling them in the country where they're currently living. So if they're living in, let's say, Turkey or Lebanon and they're Syrian, they'll try to make it possible for them to integrate there. It's only those who really they, they see as being very vulnerable. Those might be because they're from a small religious group, like uh, Yazidis who we brought here to Canada, or they might be uh, LGBT or otherwise... These are the ones where the UN will say, you know what, they, we really, making them integrate here or returning home is probably not going to be feasible anytime soon, so they recommend them to Canada. So that would be the role the United Nations plays, identifying and then recommending them to the Canadian government, after which the Canadian government will make their, their own decision of whether or not they qualify for resettlement.
0: All right, so we've seen very few Yazidis come to Canada.
1: Yes, very few.
0: Um, but Mr. Trudeau, you uh, wanted 50,000 Syrian refugees in 2016. I think the number eventually was 47,000. So ultimately, it is the responsibility or it is the option of the government of the day to make the decision which refugees will, in fact, be resettled in Canada, uh, regardless of what the U.N. might, may or may not recommend. That's correct. Okay. D- do, do we know how frequently or infrequently the U.N. recommendations are, in fact, uh, followed or are met
1: well um, I can't speak on a case-by-case case basis but uh, also there's this, this concept when you study this topic called the resettlement gap mm-hmm. which means the the gap between how many refugees the United Nations recommends and how many uh, participating countries end up actually accepting and so the United Nations has identified about 1.4 million uh, people as in need of resettlement that's out of about 71 million people who the UN has identified as refugees nowadays uh, 1.4 million are identified for resettlement. Of that, uh, governments around the world uh, resettled about 100,000 in the previous year. So there's about, only about 10% of all those who end up actually getting identified by the UN actually end up getting resettled. In, in um, Canada's case, we resettled about 30%, or just under 30% of that 100,000 in the previous year.
0: So, So that makes us number one globally. Yes, it does. How does that happen when the United States is so so much more massively large, and uh, has I, I believe the United States has been leading the global refugee resettlement um, numbers, has it not?
1: Yes, it has, and actually, there's a very this is a very interesting uh, uh, look at the numbers. Here is that yes, traditionally the U.S. has led both total resettlement, and interestingly, it's actually used that program. Uh, to extend its foreign policy as well. During the, during the Reagan days, they used it to delegitimize the Soviet Union. And so they've kind of used it both as a, as a tool to, for humanitarian reasons, a tool for foreign policy reasons, and they've also used their big resettlement numbers to try to negotiate other countries getting on board, trying to, trying to bring others into help sharing the load. Um, what we have seen, and, and to be blunt, this is, a, this is a result of the current administration's a decision here in the United States. Uh, refugee resettlement used to be a very bipartisan issue in the U.S., both Republicans and Democrats were on board uh, for different reasons. Sometimes, uh, in two, 2017, is where we see the first big drop. Uh, we see a drop of about 67% in the number of refugees the United States took in. And this year, there was a further drop. And uh, so this year, the United States, whereas traditionally they've taken about 60 to about 80,000 refugees every year, this year they took only about 23,000. Okay. And how many?
0: So really, I'm sorry. How many? How many did we take in 2018?
1: We took about twenty-seven thousand five hundred, rounded about twenty-eight
0: thousand. And how does that compare to two thousand seventeen? Two
1: thousand seventeen, we took a, a similar number, about twenty-five thousand, twenty-four thousand. We're not. We've actually had, a, except for the two thousand sixteen year, uh, we've had pretty relatively stable year-over-year increases. We do let in a few more every year, but it's only maybe about one thousand to two thousand more every year. Uh, so this is. It's not so much that Canada is taking a, a much larger, big piece of the pie. What is the pie shrunk? Mostly because the US has withdrawn from this program. But we're
0: still we're still the number one nation globally. Yeah,
1: yeah, we are per we've been the per, per capita quite high um, globally for some time, but this is a we're the highest now largely because of in part our increases but mostly because of the US decreases.
0: Do we ever find out what it is governments why how governments decide who in fact is going to be resettled to Canada? As refugees, and you've said that the United Nations make rec- makes recommendations, but yes. the government is not required to follow those recommendations. Maybe maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does it to to a certain you know percentage, uh, and then chooses others uh, to to make up whatever the total is going to be for the year. Other other refugees. Do we know who the quote? I'm using the word others. Do we know? Do we find out who they are? Like I'd like to know why our. I'd like to know how our government decides. Yeah, this group of refugees is—we're going to bring them to Canada. This group of refugees, perhaps even more deserving, the government decides not to. And I—I I have a degree—I have to tell—I've confessed to a degree of irritation with the fact that—and I shouldn't involve you in this—but I have a degree of irritation with the lack of uh, interest in bringing Yazidis who suffered so much to this country.
1: No, and uh, I mean I. I don't necessarily know the detail of every single sort of macro-level policy decision the government makes with regards to their selection process. Usually, they leave up the decision process up to individual uh, foreign service officers. Right now, I will say, having qualified that, uh, there was the UN has expressed over the years concerns with not only Canada but other resettling countries as well as taking "quote unquote" the cream of the crop, Uh, the highly educated uh, families that are more likely to integrate. Um, Whether that's the case right now, I mean, there will always be some disagreements. The UN would always like Canada and other countries to resettle more and even some of more vulnerable refugees. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was somewhat of a gap between what the UN decides is vulnerable, whether again, like in your example, it's more Yazidis Mm -hmm. uh, and what the Canadian government takes, whether or not the Canadian government is still following uh, previous governments. And when I say previous governments, I'm not actually referring to any one particular government in in, in particular. Uh, It's a multi-party thing. Uh, I don't know if this government's following the practice of taking the cream of the crop or if they're, they're actually trying to identify vulnerabilities as well. I mean, they have some with, the re- with some Yazidis, but like you've raised before, it's only a portion of the yeah. total population yeah.
0: of Yazidis. Mr. Falconer, I have a few more questions for you. Can you stay with us? Yeah. Uh, I just want to, just before we talk to Mr. Falconer again, I just want to play a little, bit, a little clip from the prime minister talking about refugees.
2: Canada has always understood that keeping Canadians safe is one of the fundamental responsibilities of any government, and that's certainly something that we're very much focused on. At the same time, we continue to pursue our policies of of, uh, openness uh, towards immigration refugees without compromising security and uh, part of the reason we're, we've been successful in doing that over the past year welcoming uh, uh, close to 40,000 uh, Syrian refugees is uh, because we have been uh, coordinating with our allies the United States and around the world to demonstrate uh, that uh, security uh, comes uh, very, uh, very seriously to us and that's something that we, uh, that we, uh, that we continue to deal with.
0: Not exactly a fluent speaker, is he? Uh, That's not the clip I I was looking for, but it's not your fault in the studio. It's my fault. But anyway. So let's talk again with uh, Mr. Falconer about this issue of resettlement and refugees. So Canada... Is Canada punching above its weight, or are we we setting a standard other countries should uh, should be meeting? Because I see in your research that Denmark has closed the door, if I understand it correctly, in 2018, closed the door on a resettlement refugees, period?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a good question. Uh, so I think one thing that that needs to clarify with also the Denmark and even the German situation is, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I do believe the resettlement program is a good program for various reasons. Now, that said, we, we are talking about a planned relocation. At the same time, Europe has, in the past couple of years, experienced a, a large influx of asylum seekers and, Many of which they're still processing and trying to to come to terms with with that. Uh, now, I think I think there's 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 a the chance and there's a the reality that there are people who are very xenophobic, very anti-immigrant here. But I, I also don't think we should necessarily neglect the reality that you know Canada we take we take a, a good number of refugees. We, I mean, again, we took the, the highest number of resettled refugees in the past year, but we also have the benefit of a of an ocean between us and uh, places that usually send refugees. Even with our current concern right now with the influx of asylum seekers and the, the increasing backlog of asylum cases in Canada, you know we're, we're still not nearly any anywhere close to the, to the levels Europe has experienced in the past few years, or even countries like Turkey or Lebanon, which again has millions more. Now that said, I, I think there's an opportunity here to set an example. Uh, the biggest thing that, that differentiates Canada from a lot of the other countries in the world is we have a, a private refugee resettlement program. This is where we allow churches, temples, uh, non-religious groups to uh, take on the costs and also the work of resettling a family, and, and oftentimes actually for better results. They they have a, a connection within the communities. They have a, a social and support network, a, a professional network. Uh, and that's something Canada has advocated on the world stage. And, and maybe if, as we take the lead here what globally, is, we can hopefully uh, help pilot this in different countries. I know right now the, both the U.K. and Germany are piloting Canadian-style private programs. So that's that's where the opportunity is, um, and while other countries are backing away from from those opportunities, uh, it also has to be contextualized the fact that they've taken hundreds of thousands, millions of asylum seekers in, in Europe right now, and other places of the world.
0: Yeah. Now I, I'm I'm just going to say this in a generic way. I'm getting tired of the term xenophobic because I don't I don't ascribe people in Canada who question the issue of refugees and and uh, and immigration numbers as being xenophobic or uh, somehow exclusionary i think that's a term that is left better to uh politicians with an agenda i have great faith in my fellow canadians and i just don't buy into the into the uh into the blanket accusations of xenophobia i'm not suggesting you did that mr falconer i'm just tired i'm just damn tired of the word um so uh, to understand again i and, and i want this i want to i want to understand this we're talking about planned refugee settlement we're not talking about uh, people who come to the Canadian border, and Roxham Road has become very famous on the uh, New York State Quebec border. Uh, who just who come to the border and claim refugee status? They, we're talking about two two completely different groups. Yes, that's correct.
1: And okay. I, and actually, I think I actually agree with you with regarding what you said about about the the word xenophobic. Is that good? Don't get me wrong. There there are there are actually this is important. In the context of, of Roxham Road and all that's happening there is that. Uh, there are certainly people who do not like immigrants, do not like refugees in any circumstances. But that said, I think there's a very large people who are very reasonable, very welcoming people yeah. who have legitimate concerns about, about what's happening. Well,
0: country. look around us. All we have to do is look yeah. around our country and, 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 and just the, the diversity in Canada speaks for the kind of welcoming people we are. Yes, for sure.
1: And I, I don't blame anybody for, for even in welcoming that diversity, also still having concerns about what's happening there. So yes, the, uh, well, it's, different... it's, it's,
0: called, it's called becoming involved and engaged.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know? But I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's, it's fascinating research, and you've done a great job. No, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the time. Have a great rest of the day. You as well. Bye-bye. Robert Falconer. There's been a lot said about the yellow vests. Who are they? And this all began in France, of course. Who are they in Canada? What's their objective? News organizations continue to report that groups like the Sons of Odin attend and have infiltrated the Yellow Vests movement, and I've read stories that suggest the movement is anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, and I received uh, an email from Mark Friesen, who is an organizer with the Yellow Vests in Western Canada and Saskatchewan, and Mr. Friesen is also an organizer for the truck convoy that's going to leave Red Deer. Uh, in the middle of February, 14th or 15th, and arrive in Ottawa on the 19th with a protest for the directed toward the Liberal government and Mr. Trudeau. So um, we'll talk about that. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Thanks very much for having me, Roy. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so let's start first of all with this question. Who are you? Who are the Yellow Vests and what's the objective?
3: Well, the Yellow Vest movement, of course, as you mentioned, started in France. And it was, it was ignited basically because of high fuel tax originally. And, and people donned the Yellow Vest as a sign of distress because everyone in France has to carry Yellow Vest in their vehicle. So they used that as a sign of, of indicating that their country and the people are under distress. Canada jumped aboard it, within that movement, the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, essentially under the carbon tax issue and energy industry and the attack on the energy industry and and pipelines not getting built and, of course, the migrant pact. So that's what really was a tipping point for Canadians to get involved in in the LFS movement. And so with that, we want to take this movement and while we we understand those two issues very clearly, the impact on the ground is very clear and that's what people are feeling, but people have to also understand that, it's, that these two issues are relative to a bigger issue uh, around sovereignty and Canadian sovereignty and the sustainable development agenda, agenda developed by the UN and how that agenda encompasses so many issues and, and agreements and accords that were developed at the UN. For example, the Paris Accord under climate change, which, of course, directly relates to the carbon tax and CO2, emissions and the whole issue around carbon tax and it also developed of course the the migrant pact at the UN level so our our focus now is 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 in two part of course first part being to protest the government and they're ceding our sovereignty to the UN an unelected organization that is creating policy that does not benefit Canadians or have Canadian and, and our country in their best interest so that's primarily that's number one number two is to educate people across our country that understand, of course, on the ground, how these issues directly affect them, like a carbon tax. Everything is more, <laughs> going to be more expensive. Every, it affects every part of our life. So they, they get that, they understand, but they don't necessarily understand the bigger picture and where this is coming from and, and the impact it's having on
1: all aspects. Of okay, Mark,
0: let me just, uh, let me just um, ask you this. And you've seen, this, seen the stories. I read something from CBC uh, overnight. Um, they were writing about a yellow vest movement in, or uh, meetings or rallies, rather, in Red Deer. And uh, it, it reads as though there are there's a significant presence or a real presence of anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. I'm talking about now as, as I read the CBC story, and you've heard the accusations. Mm-hmm. That uh, that it's anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and and racist, and this is something that you wanted to address in your conversation with me. We'll have a no longer conversation another time. There's a lot I have to fit in in this hour. Would you talk to, the, speak to that, please?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Roy. Well, the uh, first thing we need to make clear is, is yes, there is a narrative that's being pushed by certain media outlets and, of course, politicians. But at the end of the day, the movement is mostly made up of just regular folks, regular Canadians who aren't professional protesters, who haven't been in the, in the protesting arena. It's a bunch of people that are just trying to, to steer our country and push our country in the right direction. Now, within that young movement, we've seen, and I've been heavily involved literally 16 hours a day, Uh, through the groups on Facebook and and organizing. And we've seen, of course, the professional protesters trying to hijack and hitch their wagon to the movement. We've seen... Now, now when you say
0: professional protesters, we're talking about people who are openly racist and who have an open um, agenda in that regard?
3: Well, I mean, when I say professional protests, I'm speaking of types like Antifa and and those groups that have hitched. Now, within, of course, the movement, there are going to be some some bad apples. Any group has bad apples. Our country has bad apples. So we're we're weeding those folks out. We're weeding out the the racist. At the end of the day, Roy, we aren't anti-immigration by any stretch of the imagination. We all understand our country was built on immigration. Uh, it's, the, it's a very important aspect of Canada. It's what makes Canada so great. But we want to protect a country and a culture of freedom, of liberty, of equality, of, of all of these things that we hold so dear and the rest of the world looks upon us as a leader in. And we want to make sure that we... We keep that e- essential core values of our country so we're still a country that we can provide a okay. safe space to.
0: Mark, uh, I, I had a long off-air conversation with you. I have no reason to doubt what you're telling me. As far as you're concerned and what your views are and your position is, I had a long on, off-air conversation with you so I have no no reason to doubt you on that. We will have a longer conversation but right now we have about 30 seconds. So tell us about the rally. In 30 seconds. So, so, so yeah.
3: So the convoy is is planned for, to leave Red Deer on the 14th yeah. of, of February. And it'll go from Red Deer to Regina. Regina to Dryden. Dryden to Sault Ste. Marie. Sault Ste. Marie to Arn Pryor on the 18th. And we'll be rolling into Ottawa to Parliament Hill on the 19th of February. And right. it will be the most historic and largest protest event in Canadian history. And I want we want all Canadians to be part of it, not just Yellow Vest. All Canadians need to fight for
0: this. Well, you and I will talk before before that happens, before the rally happens, or they, I keep calling it a rally, the uh, convoy happens. And thank you for joining me today. We're going to talk longer, but there's a lot I have to fit in in this hour. We'll talk again. Mark Friesen, thank you very much. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate it. Take care. Mark Friesen, Yellow Vest Organizer and uh, Representative. Mark Friesen, Yellow Vest Organizer and Representative, joined us from Saskatchewan, talked about the Yellow Vest and talked about the upcoming convoy to Ottawa. But... I also thought this morning, I need to speak again with Professor Salim Mansour from the University of Western Ontario, political science professor, because the whole issue, as we started the show, is the LFS concern is, the, um, as Mr. Friesen explained, is the UN agenda and uh, for sustainable development, or the 2030 agenda, which includes the compact on migration. And uh, Professor Mansour has some very strong thoughts on all of this. One of his columns was in American Thinker. And uh, it was December the sixth, and the headline was Justin Trudeau's Canada embraces a world without borders. Professor Mansour, welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us on short notice. Thank you
4: for inviting me, Roy.
0: So, what? How concerned do we need to be about the UN agenda when the United Nations tells us, and our Prime Minister repeats, that everything's fine? The uh, you know our nation isn't being compromised. our laws are not being compromised, Canada's just fine, and we're just voluntarily agreeing to this compact on migration, and probably the agenda on sustainable sustainable development, because it makes sense. What do you say, Professor Mansour?
4: Well, what I think is this is a massive, huge scam that is taking place, and you're so right that our premiers waking up to that fact because our premiers are closest to the people in the provinces while our uh, government in Ottawa has basically bought into the globalist agenda that is the agenda of the UN in this case agenda 2030 uh, in the broadest sense and and the UN is pushing with the globalist elite with the idea of uh, one borderless world. So we can buy into this argument, which is what Justin Trudeau is doing, and say to the people, you don't need to worry about it. But the worrying begins precisely when the idea hits the road, where the rubber hits the road. And that's what's happening in this country. That's what's happening right across Europe that you're witnessing, where the globalist leaders like Macron and Merkel and May, and in our case, Justin Trudeau, they have bought into this argument of a borderless world. They're going to go out and save the world. They're going to solve the problem of world hunger, world poverty, world diseases, so on and so forth, without having made any effort to consult with the people that is their own people whom they have abandoned. And that's where we are. It is a massive scam. And when we start examining the issue, Agenda like 2030, for instance, there is a 17-point program, what it amounts to is a transfer of wealth. It's a transfer of wealth from the global north to the global south. A transfer of wealth taking money from the hard-earned taxpayers of this country and giving it to the elite in the global south so that the elite in the global south can then try to contain the problems that the UN itself has created, Roy. I mean, if you look at the history of UN interferences in trying to manage world problems on the basis of how compassionate we must be and save the planet, save the poor, in the period since 1945, we have transferred anywhere between 2.5 and $3 trillion from the global north to the global south. And now, what do we have? What is the result that the UN has to show? The result is a mass, unsettled migration from the global south to the global north. Countries that have failed, failed economies, failed states, rogue states, and rampant corruption, all under the aegis of the United Nations. And now, Agenda 2030. And the UN Global Compact on Migration or the Paris Accord are methods by which they're seeking to normalize the failure of the global south and make the people in the global north in some ways accountable for it. Now, you know, you know, you know, you know,
0: know, know, Professor Mansour, Mr. Trudeau would accuse you of probably of being a fearmonger.
4: I I didn't get that. What would
0: I say? Mr. Trudeau would probably accuse you of being a fearmonger.
4: Yes, he will, because, you know, he cannot answer the basic question. I mean, what is this UN Global Compact on Migration all about? It is about eliminating any distinction between the illegal migrants, the illegal aliens that will pour into and has been pouring into, for instance, in Europe. Mr. Trudeau cannot, by a stroke of a pen, change the geography of Canada. So we are in some sense protected by our three oceans, And the longest border with the United States. But look, the policy of UN Global Compact is being affected in Europe. Just as you and I are speaking right now, the French people are up in arms. They're protesting. What are they protesting about? What are the French? What are the German? What are the British? What are the Italian, Hungarian, Polish, Austrian, what are they protesting about? They're protesting about they are losing their country. They're being made to pay for an agenda in which they haven't been consulted and they want to take their country back. Now we hear. So I am not the one who is creating fear of people like us. This whole policy is to, in fact, silence people like us. That is the skeptics who will question these policies. On the basis of historical records. Well, let me ask
0: you this. Why are there so few voices who will actually challenge, for example, the compact on migration? I'll tell you, I have, and I did from the very beginning. When I first became aware of it, I challenged it, and I've challenged it on the air. And I've received emails that are not very pleasant to read, but it's okay. I have, I'm a big boy, and I, can, and I can understand that some people actually truly strongly believe in this. But, uh, but why are there not more voices uh, that are that are sounding an alarm as you are
4: well i mentioned the globalist elite mm-hmm. who are the globalist elite it is our uh, government in ottawa it's particularly the liberal party and its minor league players the new Democratic Party—they have bought into this agenda. They have always been into this agenda. In some ways, we can talk about that if we have the time.
0: I have about two minutes. Part
4: of the globalist elite are the academic elite in our universities. They're totally disconnected with the reality of the people who work in this country. And then part of the global elite are the media elite. Well, six weeks ago. This government, the government of Canada, paid out $600 million to the media to make them docile to the agenda of the globalist elite. If you read UN Agenda 2030 Mm -hmm. and you read the UN Global Compact on Migration, it is very clearly stated that the media has to speak the language of the UN. That is those who are skeptic, those who are critical, they will then have to be trained how to live up to the standards of the United, Nations, would, the norm of the United so, Nations. So that would be
0: some that would that would be somebody like me.
4: That is exactly like you. I mean I've
0: discussed that. You cited my
4: paper. I have discussed this at length. I mean, there is no hidden facts about this, mm-hmm. Roy. These have all been stated. When Justin Trudeau says Canada has no core identity. Roy, ask yourself: What does this mean? From Vancouver to Prince Edward Island, the common people, the Canadians, know that we have an identity. We have a an history, and a history yes, that we, we do. are proud about. Yes, and we are. Exactly. And the Prime Minister says we have no identity. Yeah. How is this, Professor? Says,
0: Professor Mansour, I have just under a minute. How does this end? For example, is, does the Conservative Party offer a real alternative? Because this all happened under Mr. Well, it started under Mr. Harper's watch.
4: Well, Mr. 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 Uh, the Conservative Party, Mr. Andrew Shea has already stated he's on record mm-hmm. that a Conservative government will revoke the signature of the liberal government on the U.N. Global Compact and Migration that Justin Trudeau and his, his immigration minister, Ahmed Hussein, signed in Marrakesh, Morocco on December the 10th. Okay. So we are on the record. We are going to discuss, that is the Conservative Party, I expect, I hope, will be open fundamentally that we do not take a position of such dramatic nature that will alter the characteristic of a country without consulting with the people seeking their absolutely, mandate.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. These sorts of decisions should not be made without a, a real public consultation that ends with a referendum. Professor Mansour, we'll talk again. I thank you so much, and I give you very little time. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thank you. Professor Salim Mansour from the University of Western Ontario. Lyle and Carol Bronze are the parents of humble Broncos athletic therapist, Dana Bronze, who lost her life in the uh, horrific truck and Broncos team bus crash. And uh, Lyle and Carol Bronze join us on the program to speak about the, what's ahead for them, the five days of sentencing hearings for Jeskrit Singh Sidhu. Uh, They begin tomorrow. Singh Sidhu, as you know, pleaded guilty to all criminal charges related to the deaths and the injuries on the Broncos team bus. And uh, Mr. And Mrs. Bronze, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? Oh,
5: we're we're doing okay, I guess. We're, we're yeah, we're hanging in there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, people want to know. I mean, there's such a great deal of of uh, concern and connection with with all of the families, uh, and we all we all really care about you. Um, the question everybody has to be asking you is, is there a, is there a, was there a sense of relief? And is there a sense of release, relief knowing this individual, the, the driver of the truck, is going straight to sentencing without a trial and uh, an attempt at a not guilty verdict?
4: Um, I,
6: yes. Me yeah, either, think it definitely it is. is.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did it take you by surprise when, when he pled as he did?
5: Yeah, it did, actually. Hmm. Yeah.
3: It, it did and expect- it didn't for me. I, I guess I was
6: kind of halfway expecting it, but I just really wasn't sure. I, did, I really didn't know what to expect.
0: Yeah, and, and and over the next five days, do you know what to expect? Have you been given a an idea of how this is all going to uh, evolve starting tomorrow?
5: A, a brief outline, I guess. There'll be some... There'll be, I believe, what they, they're called the agreed statement of facts will be entered, and then um, at some point they'll start hearing the the victim impact statements and those have chosen those who have chosen to read them in court they'll start yeah on possibly on Monday.
0: Can't imagine what would, how how difficult it would have to be to write a victim's impact statement. And then we've we've heard over over years now that the the Crown will, will often tell um, individuals how long the victim's impact statement can be and what you can in fact write. Were you given any restrictions?
5: Yeah there's a on what you can write about. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, Go ahead, Carol. Uh, length lengthwise, they didn't really say that it could be had to be a certain length. Um, but yeah, there were restrictions as to what you're supposed to deal with in your impact statement.
0: Yeah. Um, Lyle, anything you want to add to that?
5: Um, not really. No.
0: Okay. Uh, Carol, you've said that the the death of Dana can't mean nothing, and you want politicians to take action and initiatives to reduce the likelihood of a repeat tragedy. Could you speak to that, please? What do you want? What do you want? What has to be done so your daughter's life, using your words, can't mean nothing?
5: Um, well, I guess we are working towards. There, there was some changes announced last week about the training across the country, and and we are working with Patty Fair, whose husband was killed in an accident with. Uh, Semi trailers to get a petition um, signed across Canada. Right now, we have 3,000 signatures to try and enforce. It, have more than just a training. We want to have different, uh, like have it as a so that they can get funding for training, and and that there's records kept of the train the schools that do the training, so that you can, you know, that if there's people that are Going through training and, and aren't you know, coming out as good drivers, you have some recourse to the as well. So we want it to become like a journeyman basically type of job.
0: Right, sort of a graduated license.
6: Yes.
5: Yeah, that would be a good thing to have as well. We would encourage that as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost uh, unbelievable that in Canada it wasn't, and it is still isn't. National regulation that uh, semi drivers, semi truck drivers, are mandated to take a course. It's, it's almost unbelievable that that would, in fact, uh, be uh, have been the way things were and still are, and, and, and will ho- obviously and hopefully change. Uh, have you thought about what an appropriate sentence would mean? We've heard some parents say it doesn't. At this point, it it doesn't matter. Or I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but the length of the sentence is not what they're primarily concerned about. What about what are you? What are your thoughts on on sentencing for this man?
6: I, to me, I really know, know what what is the right thing. I, you know, he's he's taken uh, responsibility and, and he's he's shown some remorse and, um, at the same time, you know, I, I would hope. A lengthy sentence would be a deterrent to to uh, somebody on some someone else driving you responsibly. Yeah.
0: yeah.
6: Um, but you know, I'm not sure it would make a difference or not because, you know, even after the accident, you see people driving uh, right here in Saskatchewan, and and as, as big a thing as as this whole crash has been here in this province, I don't see a lot of driving habits changing yet.
5: Yeah. Yeah. There's. I mean, people are driving around with stickers on their vehicles, you know, in support of the Broncos, and and they're texting while they're driving or yeah. creeping through stop signs or whatever. It it you know, um, I, I'm not sure what it will take to change the the attitudes of drivers.
0: That's a very good point, and and that's going to have to be critically impressed upon people. I I wish you both only uh, peace, and uh, and I hope the next five days are not. Uh, you know, massively uh, disturbing. I don't really know what to say to you, other than I care about you, and I and I wish you and all the all the families only uh, only peace and, and and the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. Take good care, yeah. Lyle and Carol Bronze. Joe, good to talk to you on the air again. We talk privately, but on the air, it's been a while. Oh, Roy, it's been a long time. It's been too long, and it's a real honor for me to join you
6: and, of course, my old friend Scott.
0: Hi, Joe.
6: Hello, Scott
0: just the voice comes out of the back of the room. Hi, Joe. And I got to tell you, when you do that, I'm thinking when you were a prosecutor, if I heard that and I was the judge, I'd be paying attention.
2: <laughs> well, actually, what it was really designed to do is if you were the accused, that you would then respond with the word guilty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and many did, from what I understand. Uh, the legend of, of Scott Newer continues in the courtrooms of Alberta. So, Joe, can we start, please, by you sharing with us how it is that you became involved, engaged, and determined to make a difference as far as justice is concerned in of course, Canada?
6: Of course, Roy. You know, in uh, when my son Jonathan, he was 15, he was attacked in a park directly across my the home, the street from my home. Uh, at that time, both his mom and I, we believed that the justice system protected innocent people in this country. We we really had no involvement with it prior to that. Uh I was absolutely stunned when I realized how little the justice system and the Canadian federal and provincial government provide support for victims of violent crime. We always believed that if you were hurt there would be somebody there to give you a helping hand, support you, provide for Additional medical coverage that is not provided by OHIP and other medical uh, programs that are available to Canadians. We were virtually left on our own. We became citizens without a country. Once we discovered this, we started to uh, become very, very vocal, uh, not only in our own community, but virtually across Canada. And we came to the quick realization, Roy, that we were not alone, that there were thousands of other families across this country that have suffered re-victimization through the Canadian justice system and are completely outcast and left alone by every single agency provincially, federally and municipally from this country from coast to coast to coast. It was at that time that we decided that we can't sit back any longer and we've got to make changes. Now, what we have done is we created, my wife and I created, the Canadian Crime Victim Foundation. and it is is it lobbies provincial and federal governments for legislative changes to provide, provide greater rights for victims of violent crime and also to provide greater consequence for those who who are the dispatchers of violence to ordinary Canadians uh, we did find out that it was uh, it's a long long road we were successful we worked with um The Harper Government actually was the only government that provided any support and would actually listen to us. I have met five sitting vice sorry prime ministers in this country, and he was the only one that actually listened to us as a result of our lobbying work. We were able to make nine changes to the Canadian Criminal Code and write a uh, a, 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 a victims um, justice uh, A Bill of Rights. And uh, unfortunately, that Bill of Rights today is constantly being diluted, and the changes in the justice system and the criminal code that we made, such things as minimum sentencing uh, for violent crimes against kids, against anybody else, uh, some of these things are now currently being thrown out by the federal government.
0: So this brings us to uh, a conversation, or at least an aspect of the conversation, where Scott and I have talked over, over on and off over the last couple of years. And and Scott, i hand handed to you. You were very much involved with the Office for Victims of Crime for the Province of Ontario. Are governments providing victim service programs? Are they helping victims as they should? Is the system working?
2: Well, you know that's a that's a really interesting point, and that's how I got to meet uh, Joe. Um, and in particular, uh, he was somebody who exposed what I will call the bureaucratic incompetence and indifference of the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board in Ontario. Uh, And ironically also, I was looking actually over some old documents uh, this morning, Uh, he uh, uh, was also somebody who had the attention of Mike Harris and uh, different provincial ministers, and they actually asked our office based on the work that uh, Joe had done and exposed this just ridiculous bureaucracy in the criminal injuries Compensation board, they actually asked us to look into it. Uh, it you know I was an order and council appointment, so I had a statutory mandate to do that. and as you can imagine, the criminal injuries Compensation board was not very happy uh, that we were going to be asking them some pointed questions about what they did and they didn't do and to explain themselves. And it, unfortunately what happened is Mike Harris left and the uh, new Ontario uh, government came in and there was uh, virtually no interest in carrying on with the same kinds of priorities. And so uh, literally that the, the, the new at, attorney general uh, decided that uh, he didn't really want to be bothered with, uh, with doing that kind of work. And it struck me, I remember at the time as well too, that sometimes people... Uh, don't fully appreciate this, but the importance of the people who hold those different political offices and what their priorities are. Because for Mike Harris, and I very much agree about uh, Stephen Harper as well too. Uh, public safety, assisting crime victims, confidence in the justice system, those were all high priorities, and it actually produced results. Uh, as for the current state today in relation to uh, victim services, as I say I went back and I was looking over uh, the uh, the documents that's why our office was originally uh, created back in 1998 and the w- review that we did was of uh, victim services in Ontario which was done in 1999 so in other words 20 years ago I think it's a very good question as to what the state of victim services uh, in Ontario are and indeed in other jurisdictions across the country because as Joe has described, it's critically important um, that they're functional and not uh, bureaucratic and that they have the appropriate mandate to be able to deliver the services that victims legitimately require.
0: I need to take a break, but we need to also have consistency across the country where, you know, the federal government has responsibility for... That's a
2: challenge because of the provincial... No, I understand.
0: I understand. But there has to be some level of consistency across the country so, you, so people can feel there's... You know, there's something's good going to happen to us. Joe was speaking. I was thinking, Joe, that you and your wife uh, were were struggling to get your son's life, uh, actually save your son's life, and then move forward from there. But you weren't getting the assistance that you required. You thought you would, but it didn't happen. And so you had to strike out on your own.
6: We fought for... Four years, and Roy, you know me. When I start fighting for something, I stick with it. I don't. You know, we, we
0: knew once you, we we knew when Joe Wombeck arrived on the scene to to challenge the criminal justice system. I remember saying to some somebody, "This man is going to do it differently. This man is going to be there for the long run."
6: After five years, five years of fighting with the political will within the province of Ontario, we received absolutely nothing. I ended up being an an advocate for many, many victims going before the Ontario Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, and through our efforts, through my efforts, we were able to get virtually a paltry sum of money. Most people are refused. We don't know why. The the reports are, are confidential. Uh, we've seen in, uh, individuals come rejected because of the most minor clerical errors. And, Roy, it's been our experience that most people who have become victims of violent crime, and I'm talking about parents whose children are victims of homicide, they don't want money. They want help. They want support. Right. They want psychological counseling. They want to be viewed as equal to their those that have been their victimizers.
0: Well, I have to take this break, but I, w- I just want to say this. I've spoken to the mum of a five-year-old who was murdered in Alberta. The mum left the province for a couple of years, stayed in Canada, just left the province, then came back to Alberta, and she was struggling, you know, obviously, with the still struggling with the fact that her five-year-old daughter had been abducted and raped and murdered. And so she asked for psychological for assistance, uh, so that she would be able to visit a psychologist or in some way. Provide her with some assistance for the emotions that she was that she was struggling with, and she was told she was told in no uncertain terms that she hadn't applied soon enough. Two years had gone by, and that disqualified her from help. Absolutely abhorrent. The official position is often very interesting, or at least what the what the voices representing the official position put forward. And Mr. Newark remembers well, and we've talked about this uh, more than once. Correctional Service Canada, representative on this program, talking about the difference between those who are behind prison walls, as in don't want to be there, locked up, and those of us who are not behind prison walls. Remember what they said, Scott?
2: Non-convicted persons living in the community. That's
0: right. That's right. Non-convicted, I think the word was individuals. individuals. It's one of those phrases (laughs) that doesn't roll off the tongue, but you can't ever forget it.
2: You know, on the same point, I remember in the work that we were doing, and we were analyzing the delivery of uh, victim services and looking at the different institutions and models, and I was talking with this uh, lady who was the head of one of the uh, uh, victim witness assistance programs called VWAPs uh, that were out of the attorney general's office, which is where we uh, I reported to the attorney general. And I remember just sort of asking her about what it was that they did, and she explained that the... Uh, the policy directive of the uh, VWAP, the Victim Witness Assistance Program, was that they were there uh, to help the Crown deal with victims. So I said, well, I can understand that, but don't you think the mandate should be to help victims deal with the crime, with the Crown? And there was a pause, and she looked at me, and she goes, you know, that's a very good point. She actually came to work with us, Tracy uh, Clark. She was great. And uh, there was uh, some significant improvements made, but um, I was actually looking this morning at some of the... uh, uh... the different uh, lists the databases uh, within the attorney general's department there sure seem to be a lot of uh... officials in head office and i hope i mean the uh, the harris government made huge improvements in terms of expanding victim services but as i say that was uh, back uh, you know almost uh... twenty years ago so i'm i'm not familiar with what the status is right now but that was definitely an issue is to make sure that the system was designed to help crime victims uh, get what they need as opposed to to the convenience
0: of the bureaucracy. Well, wasn't the, I mean there was the victims uh, victim surcharge.
6: Yeah, uh, let me answer, right? let me jump in here, you know, one of the things that Scott just mentioned is really wrong very very loudly in my mind is that the victim Uh, Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, the amounts that are payable to victims or allocated to victims for various expenses such as psychological counseling et al., has not changed in 20 years and that is in that in itself is absolutely shameful and what just happened recently within the Supreme Court of Canada and i want to add that these are nine appointed individuals these are not elected individuals these are nine appointed individuals that are changing the social fabric and they are socially engineering canadian citizens parliament has issued legislation and has passed legislation to provide for victim fine surcharges on Criminal activity. The Supreme Court has now ruled that uh, as is as as inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So there will be no more victim fine surcharges by judges that have been uh, appointed by.
0: And where where did the seventy five million dollars go?
6: We don't know. I've been trying to find that out for the last decade or so through Freedom of Information. But what I believe happens is that it just goes into general. No,
2: I suspect so. Let me actually just comment on that because it's even. Uh, I, I very much agree with your uh, your take on the Supreme Court ruling. And it's even worse because there is the issue about the changes that were made to the victim fine surcharge by the Harper government. There was always an issue as to whether or not it might be viewed as inappropriate. And the current government actually has legislation waiting to be passed that will make changes to the victim fine surcharges that are in accordance with the issues that the Supreme Court raised. But the Supreme Court could have said, well, okay, the current process, you know, isn't uh, appropriate, and so we're going to give, you know, a six-month window for the uh, uh, parliament to uh, uh, make some changes, Uh, in which case the system would have continued on for six months. But instead, out of a display, I think, of just unbelievable arrogance, they go, no, we're striking the whole thing down, that's it. Okay, I'm so gonna. No I'm, more victim I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. gonna have to. I'm
0: gonna have to take a. I'm gonna have to take a break in just a minute. One. Uh, one point before we take the break, and and then uh, have Jesse Mello join us. Joe, you mm-hmm. stepped up through your foundation, and you helped people financially, where where government didn't wouldn't system wouldn't.
6: We have my wife and I have raised over eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the last almost two decades, and every single nickel of the money that has been raised has been handed out to. Uh, Uh, survivors of extreme violence and siblings of homicide victims so that they can at least have an education and move forward with their lives. We also provide free psychological counseling through an arrangement that we've made as we fund York University's psychology department for victims of crime within York region. We'd love to be able to expand that, but raising money for this cause is is, is like beating your head against a wall. Okay, I We're have not to take... stopping. We're not quitting. No, I know you we, we are the only organization in this country that does that because okay, we I have, have to many take a break. People recognize
0: that, Joe. I have to take a break. Scott, I have to take a break. I do remember that, for Carol DeDelli, whose son was Tim McLean was. Murdered on that Greyhound bus, as people well know, and all of the interest was toward Vince Lee. The official interest was for Vincent Lee, the killer. We can't call him a murderer because he's, you know, NCR. Uh, there was a there was actually a GoFundMe page for Carol DeDele, the the victim's mother, because of everything that she experienced. That's the way the system fails to look after people. When we come back, Jessie Mello will join us and her story, and her righteous indignation over what's going on in her with her family because of the Correctional Service of Canada. The issue is Canada's criminal justice system, prison system, and uh, how it functions or fails to function, and how victims of crime find themselves time and again wondering what just happened to them, what just happened to them. You know, I've you've heard crime victims on this program talk about their victims' impact statements being actually uh, censored by prison officials, saying, no, it's too long. Uh, no, we can't have you write that. And then the convicted individual, in some cases a killer, gets to see the victim's impact statement uh, before it's ever presented at a parole hearing. And so that person, the, the, the convicted person, uh, knows what's coming his or her way. Jesse Mello joins uh, Scott Newark and Joe Wambach now. Jesse is in uh, Vancouver, joins us from Vancouver. Her father was uh, Eddie Hurricane Mello, Canadian boxer who was murdered in a contract killing in Toronto, $75,000 contract killing. Charles Gagne was the killer. And uh, he was on day parole from prison when he committed the murder. Jesse, thank you uh, for coming back on, and uh, you got in touch with me a few days ago to talk about or share with me what's going on as far as your father's killer is concerned, share that with us, please.
7: Yeah, so I just got notification about, I don't know, a week or two ago that he has been granted a 60-day uh, unsupervised work relief pass to go and work in uh community, and, um, you know, this came as a huge shock to me because, um, first of all, nobody... In the community is aware of it I contacted the OPP out there they had no clue other than there was going to be a federal inmate that would be you know in the area but no name no picture no convictions like nothing and they wouldn't tell me the location or even like the times they just told me the dates. and so it was a really big shock because this is a huge public safety issue so um, from then, I reached out to a bunch of MPs and senators, and I reached out to the mayor of the area there, and she was, you know, really upset about this and, and knowing his crime. And, um, you know, obviously you don't want people like that in your community, and, you know, to be unsupervised when... He was supposed to be under the watch of Corrections Canada and be supervised on a one-day day day pass when he committed this double homicide against my father and his friend back in 2001, and he was never monitored for that, made it from Ottawa to Mississauga without being detected or having anything out that he failed to check in. Uh, But now you want to put him on 60 days with no monitoring, and, you know, it's 45 minutes away from the institution. And you're not informing the OPP of who he is, or a picture, or you know anything. It's it's just insanity to me. You to get, you 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 like
0: spoke that. you spoke with the warden at Beaver Creek, did you not? With the, the prison he is Yes,
7: yes. He he actually um, gave me a call and um, asked for me to trust in him him and the system. And I just basically said. Um, you asked me to trust in a system that failed me before I ever had to have anything to do with it, and I don't know you, and I've pleaded with you in the hopes that you are actually reading my victim impact statement letters and ones from my friends and family and a petition that has over 6,000 signatures, and yet you had it within your capacity to approve or deny it, and you chose to approve it, um, knowing that past behavior is a really good predictor of future behavior, um... And so, yeah, it, I, I got very little from him. Uh, it was very much a lot of blanketed, generalized statements. Nothing really pertained to me or Charles Gagné because, you know, unfortunately, he does have a lot more rights with privacy and, and everything than I do. So um, I made it a mission to go and enlighten as many people as I can because if they're not going to do it to try to keep the public safe, then that's exactly what I'm going okay. to do. Okay. Um,
0: let me bring Scott Newark into this. Scott, you know Jesse's story. We've talked to her before. But this is a story that's repeated again and again and again.
2: Yeah, it is. It's about the, uh, the way in which Correctional Service of Canada exercises their authority. Uh, Jesse, am I right that um, you uh, tracked down uh, exactly where it was that this guy was going to be doing his, quote, work release?
7: Yes, I, I made oh, close to a hundred, if not over a hundred, phone calls to find out exactly where he would be.
2: Yes, and, and it's, it's a very public a, it, place. It's at a local animal shelter, as I understand it, right?
0: Yes, yes. He's in. Right. He's in. He's going to be in Russo, Ontario.
2: Yeah, Yes. And when you spoke to the person that was the the guy that ran the animal shelter, uh, did he did Correctional Service of Canada give him full details about this guy's background?
7: No, they did not. So when I spoke to um, the woman there, I'd asked for a supervisor or a manager or whatever, and she said she was the closest thing to to that. And I explained to her the situation, and she said, like, she was shocked. I mean, I said, you know, this isn't somebody that just didn't pay their taxes for seven years or ripped off a Walmart. He committed a double homicide. And she was under the impression that it was not, you know, violent offenses and that they were within um 18 months of their release and i said well charles gagne is a long ways away from you know his release especially within 18 months so i don't know you know if she's not getting the full story or if corrections is you know bypassing are the wardens bypassing something that maybe is supposed to be only for people that are you know within 18 months and have started their application but as far as i know you know uh, 18 months is not not what I was told for anything.
2: Scott, think think about that for a second for everybody who's listening, okay? Here you've got Correctional Service of Canada officials who are governed by both the statute and the regulations, and they decide that they're going to release this guy on what are unescorted temporary absences. My understanding is that he has to return at night, but he will be gone for the entire day, and they pick, there has to be approved locations, and they withhold the truth uh from the people who run this uh animal shelter uh about what this guy's background is and as you pointed out by the way the last time when he was uh, he's in prison for murders yes. that he committed while he was on early release how yeah. outrageous is it that a public institution folks that we pay for withholds that information from the people that they're going to uh, give this guy to and and in my opinion, I can tell you, because I looked at the statutes, I think they may have violated the statute by not providing the necessary information to the local police. This is mm-hmm. outrageous.
0: What are your oh, thoughts? Yeah. Joe, what are your thoughts?
6: Of course, I, I, I concur with Scott uh, completely, but this isn't the first time we've heard of that. We Our hearts go out to Jesse and her family, but this isn't the first time that we've heard of this there was a, uh, a release just recently about a, a, an absolutely violent individual who escaped justice in the United States and was imprisoned here in Canada, and the parole board ruled against Corrections or Corrections Canada ruled against the parole board and uh, uh, let him go back out on parole.
0: That's right. That's and,
6: right. It, it happens all the time. And
0: he'd killed his he'd killed his mother. He
6: killed his mother precisely with a baseball bat.
0: And then he committed absolutely violent, violent, vicious. Sexual assaults, which have left women he attacked in uh, in 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 physical and emotional stress, distress for the rest of their lives, and Correctional Service Canada didn't want him released, but the Parole Board of Canada said, "No, he's making good progress. We'll send him back to the states."
2: Yes, that's the real point. That they've deported him to the United States, and the Americans are not amused. I can
0: assure you. No, but but he could get out in a year and a half. In the States, yes, once he's sent there.
6: And then he can come back into Canada, at, can back uh, into Canada. At, at his own will. One of the things I wanted to add to No,
2: he'd be that, inadmissible to Canada.
0: Well, you, well, you know, we're talking. We're not talking about coming back That's legally.
2: That's okay, though. Uh, under our current pr- prime minister, we have very secure borders. That's, borders. Well, that was my point, Scott, exactly. One of the <laughs> things, too,
6: that has really, really troubled me is that uh, when I heard my prime minister say that when he was talking about returning ISIS terrorists, who have Canadian citizenships, that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, and that they deserve every available opportunity and and support that we can muster up. And yet, and yet, they absolutely refuse, our governments absolutely refuse to provide any support for Canadian victims of terrorism. Be it nine eleven, be it the terrorist attack in LAX where Canadians were 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 hurt, were victimized, or or murdered, they still have not received
2: any. you know? Can I ask you, Jesse? Do you know? Have the uh, OPP uh, taken any steps to uh, get the necessary information from CSE? Yes, yeah. yeah. So they
7: Good. first heard about it from me, um, and I did follow up, obviously, and I was told that Beaver Creek was being very uncooperative with them and that they were looking to reach up to their higher powers within the OPP to put a little bit more pressure on um, Beaver Creek and Corrections Canada um, for some more information and, you know, to try to see what they could do because, you know, these are officers that also live and work in the community and they do not, you know, and then they're going in blind because they have no history of this guy from, from the warden or corrections and everything that they've been provided with was from me. As, as a victim. I want to
0: ask Jesse your question about you you said you, you actually met with this Charles Gagnier who killed your dad yes,
7: yes. T-
0: tell us about that
7: um so that was uh, it was a really um, terrifying experience for me because I didn't know what to expect and he you know he sat there and he shook and he cried and he couldn't get his words together and he was sweating profusely and you know, I knew going into it that he was a master manipulator because he had admitted that on several occasions and um, whatnot. And he just... He didn't really... I mean, he took accountability for what he did, obviously, but this is not a person that that is rehabilitated or is that I would feel is remotely, um, you know, safe to be out in the community. Uh, like I said, he didn't know my dad, and, um, you know, he... He said that, you know, had he done his research or whatever, maybe things would have been different, but this was not, it had nothing to do with organized crime. You know, it wasn't anything to do with, with mobsters or gangs or, or bikers or anything else like that. It was a very jealous man that got in touch with this guy through another criminal that he knew. And this guy just wanted to try to move up, I guess, in, in criminal underworld, um, even though this original guy that hired him had no ties really to it. Yeah. And he's a career criminal and he makes his living on inflicting pain on people and, and destroying people's lives. And I mean he was four years into a ten year sentence with a loaded A K forty seven, you know, when he did a robbery and I could only imagine what those people you know had to experience
0: so now we know. I mean now we know yeah. how the system is is dealing with, with this one individual and yet as years far as later,
2: okay, the correctional Service of Canada officials withhold relevant information from the people who have to accept them to come there, this animal shelter that has kids at the shelter. We have a saying in our justice system, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And by the way, just uh, so you're clear, the police have authority in Ontario under the uh, Police Services Act. It's Ontario Regulation 265. They can put out a public alert notice. Uh, if somebody that they believe to be a danger is uh, uh, being released into the community, don't be surprised
0: if that happens. okay, I wonder just before we take a break, I want to s- tell one more story that illustrates again how the system fails. Harold Smelzer is the individual I mentioned uh, I mentioned earlier about a five year old girl who'd been abducted and sexually assaulted and murdered and tossed uh, away literally in a garbage bag. Smeltzer is the guy who did that and he had been convicted of uh, I think up to forty other, assaults on young women and girls he's sent to prison he's got a life sentence but a life sentence means doesn't mean a life sentence he's out he's, he's he's allowed into a halfway house in regina of course the community has no idea he's there he admits to the parole board that while he's out walking one day on you know his have from his halfway house he's sexually attracted to a to a girl a little girl he admits it. Do they put him back in prison? No. The parole board actually congratulates him for having been truthful and, ass- ass- and says, you- congratulations, I'm paraphrasing Mr. Smeltzer, clearly you're making progress. You're recognizing what's happening to you. This is the insanity that is allowed to go on. And Joe talked about uh, about uh, terrorists and terrorism. Robert Hall was, was, uh, and John Ridsdale were the two Canadians who were abducted and murdered by an ISIS-supporting uh, terrorist group in the Philippines? Mr. Hall's family members were on this program on quite a few occasions, and they received nothing—not even in the way of communication—from the federal government uh, until the until the very end, when his sister, when Mr. Hall's sister, went to Ottawa and demanded a meeting with the prime minister. She got that meeting, and with the uh, with the uh, uh, with one of the ministers, one of the other ministers, but essentially the family was totally ignored, and were given nothing in the way of support or or any comfort. It's it's all backwards. Joe, what are your final thoughts? What what do we what do we absolutely need to remember about this system of ours? I
6: think that everybody needs to remember that we can change it. We just need the will. We need people to to recognize how horrific it is when you become a victim of a violent crime. And the way it exists right now, you're a citizen without a country. The only way to do that is, especially during an election year, is to pressure your MPs and your candidates in your writings across this country to ensure that they are going to do something to make positive changes to support victims of crime in this country
0: right, jesse how what grade would you give how satisfied are you with the kinds of responses that you received to the questions that you delivered you asked about your father's killer and what was going on with him
5: um i i didn't
7: i didn't get much from them and you know it just it's really terrifying because you know we had a crown prosecutor by the name of Stephen sheriff and you know he minimized everything and had he designated him as a dangerous offender or not did this plea deal where they didn't even get the person that was part of the plea deal um you know convicted of anything then we wouldn't i wouldn't be having these conversations and uh he would have been doing you know his life with no eligibility for 25 years I would have still had a few more years to to breathe and not have this literally consume my life my family's life I mean this is a crown that was supposed to protect the people and yet made sweetheart deals and went to the parole board saying that he referred to him as a friend him and Charles Gagné were friends you know he threatened to throw my grandparents in jail during the trial because my grandmother was crying you know and and I think so many things along the system need to change and I mean our first introduction with you know having the Crown who is supposed to be for us who was so against us and then right. have such a slap in the face up here on
0: okay. his
2: behalf as a friend.
0: That's awful to hear. Uh, it really is. S- Scott, Forty uh, about 45 seconds.
2: Um, the, um, first of all, uh, Jesse, uh, pay attention to what's going on in Parliament uh, this week. I think you might see that the case gets raised and some pointed questions asked. And just finally, to Joe's point about the overall justice system itself, we all need to remember our criminal justice system is a public institution. It's not the private preserve of lawyers and criminals and judges. It belongs to us as people. And the good news is, folks, if you pay attention, you take action, we can take it back.
0: Joe Wambach, Jesse Mello, Scott Newberg, thank you all very much.